This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The medical examiner covering Minneapolis is now ruling that George Floyd's death was a homicide. We begin with breaking news. New York City's chief medical examiner says an autopsy on Jeffrey Epstein shows the financier hanged himself in his jail cell. The findings released late today appear to shoot down theories that he may have been strangled. I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and this is my life of crime. Seems like we're hearing this kind of news all too often today. High-profile cases of questionable deaths. George Floyd, actress Natalie Wood, accused sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. When the question is accident, murder, or suicide, it's not cops who provide the answer. It's the job of detectives in white coats, Forensic pathologists, highly trained medical doctors working as death investigators. And as you can imagine, a lot can ride on their determinations. In George Floyd's case, the question is, was he murdered by a police officer? Or was his death caused by underlying health problems and maybe potential intoxicants? Did Jeffrey Epstein take his own life, or did someone else stop him from implicating powerful friends? Whenever anyone dies under mysterious circumstances, of course there's the emotional need just to know why. But there also may be insurance payouts at stake, or even the public's health. That's the job of forensic pathologists. What forensic pathologists bring to a death investigation is medical expertise. The police at the scene are trained in collecting evidence, for example, shell casings or the gun or documenting injury to the buildings or to a car. But what we're skilled at is looking at the dead body and figuring out whether they died from injury or from natural disease, and if they were injured, how they were injured, in what sequence, with what force, 
answering those kind of questions that come up in a legal setting, such as a criminal trial. That's Dr. Judy Melanick. I spoke with her in San Francisco, where she was working as a forensic pathologist. As I mentioned, pathologists are highly trained. She completed four years of training, and that was after medical school. And yet, she says, most Americans have no idea what she does, even though she's often a crucial witness, maybe the most crucial witness at criminal trials. Do her findings suggest a suicide or a murder? Did a person die from natural causes? Or was he asphyxiated or strangled? Did a person die of an unusual virus or disease? For instance, if I find that someone's dead in a hotel room of carbon monoxide poisoning, we can shut down that hotel and prevent other people from getting killed. If I find, for instance, that a child died of meningitis, then we can give antibiotics to all of the caregivers and the other children who were exposed to prevent them from dying. So doing an autopsy in a setting of sudden or violent death allows us to intervene as a public health agency and prevent other people from getting killed. Clearly, forensic pathologists have to get it right. But what happens when they don't? Or when they're pressured to change his or her findings? Dr. Melanick says it happens more often than you think. You're saying it's a systemic problem. I mean, how prevalent is this? So you have to understand that when we surveyed forensic pathologists, about 82% said that they had been told at some point or pressured at some point by either family members or by supervisors to change their death certificate. Think about that for a minute. In a national survey, 82% of the forensic pathologists who determine the cause and manner of deaths in this country say they've been pressured to change their findings. It's a very common occurrence. 10% of forensic pathologists said this occurred on a monthly basis. Now, I should temper that by saying most of those are situations where family members, for instance, are not happy about a suicide determination because of religious prohibitions against suicide or because that might have effects on their financial ability to get, uh, for example, insurance payments in an insurance case. But there are also instances when the pressure is political or comes from maybe the district attorney, the sheriff, or other political figures, and it can at times, according to Dr. Melanick, be outright intimidating. Well, at one point when I was in the morgue, I actually had a sheriff's department employee, a deputy, come in and muscle his way in while I'm standing over the body with my scalpel. And I told him to step back and he refused. And then he muscled me against the counter. So I'm actually one of those statistics who was physically assaulted in the morgue when I was trying to perform an autopsy. I put the scalpel down, I got out of there. I mean, that can be very intimidating. It is very intimidating. It was three times my size. And so you had to quit? No, I left. I stepped out. I had one of my colleagues do that case. Right. But, but when I the mean, sheriff took over the office, I knew that I couldn't work there. But what happens if you don't leave, if you stay and even give in to that pressure? A homicide could be covered up. It may all become clear to you when I tell you about the case of Daniel Humphreys in Stockton, California. You know, I'm, I mean, you never know nowadays what's going to happen to a person, but uh, the way it happened, no. That shouldn't happen to anybody. You're listening to Barbara Stewart, Humphrey's ex-wife. 
She's an attractive woman, but seems world-weary and even teary as she talks about the father of her two children. He died in 2008 at the age of 47. I could have stood up and made more noise. I could have tried to do something. Daniel Humphreys died in a motorcycle accident. What were you told initially? In the very beginning, what had you been told had happened to Daniel? Uh, I was told that he had run from the police on his motorcycle and crashed and um, I did know that he had been tased. He had been drinking, so I think he was afraid he was going to get a, a DUI. And so he ran from the police, made a bad judgment call. Yep, made a bad choice. He, he wasn't uh, not at fault either, you know. He was partially to blame for the unfolding of it, but the outcome could have and should have been different. What do you mean? I, I don't think anyone deserves to be tased 31 times. You heard her right. Daniel Humphreys was tased by the state police 31 times. Have you ever heard of anyone being tased 31 times? I don't think I've heard of any more. I don't know. I, have, I haven't heard it. But Barbara didn't know that initially. She was told Daniel had died from injuries he sustained in the accident. It wasn't until later, Barbara says, that she learned that Daniel would likely have survived if he hadn't been tased so many times by a state patrol officer. Honestly, I, I think the officer was angry that he had run. And I think that he wanted to make a point that maybe next time you might not want to run, you know? So I think he was trying to make a point. Uh, I don't think his intentions were maybe to kill him, but um, ultimately he did as a result. None of that was made public. The San Joaquin County Sheriff, Steve Moore at that time, kept the information about the taser quiet and didn't even tell the forensic pathologist who did the autopsy how many times the taser had been deployed. And Sheriff Moore could get away with that because he also happened to be the county coroner, which meant the pathologist worked for him. Dr. Melanick explains. It is a serious concern, and it's a symptom of a systemic problem, which is one in which law enforcement which oftentimes runs coroner's offices, death investigation offices, they will control the information in those offices and restrict that information from getting to the pathologist. The pathologist in this case was Dr. Bennett Amalu. When he did the autopsy on Humphreys, he knew right away there was more to the story. So he refused to call it an accidental death. He labeled it instead as undetermined. Dr. Amalu, my hero. Why do you say he's your hero? Because he always did the right thing. Even when he knew they were trying not to make that information public as, at least as long as possible, he still, 
he wouldn't make a, a determination because he knew there was more. It took Dr. Amalu nine years to find out what really happened to Daniel Humphreys. An assistant district attorney finally told him the truth. And in 2017, Dr. Amalu wrote an angry letter to Sheriff Moore, and then he just quit his job. Sheriff Coroner Moore says it was his job to determine manner of death, and he denies he interfered in any death investigations. Humphrey's case finally became public, although no officer was ever held responsible for his death. And Barbara Stewart is still haunted by how her ex-husband died. But in your mind, even if, even if it's not official, what do you believe happened to Daniel? Did Daniel have to die? No. No, he, he killed him. There's no doubt, I'm sure, in my mind or his. You mean the officer yes. involved who used the taser? Yes. that hard to accept? Yes, and I drive by the, that location every week. It's in my mind all the time, because I kind of feel like I let my kids down. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. So how does something like this happen? As I mentioned, pathologists like Dr. Amalu are medical doctors. If he had been working in a big city like New York or Chicago, he would probably have been working for a medical examiner, who's also a medical doctor. But in about half the country, pathologists work for county coroners, like Sheriff Moore. Coroners are elected, and they don't have to be doctors. And here's the important point. They are often members of law enforcement. So when there's a questionable death at the hands of a cop, like in the case of Daniel Humphreys, you have a possible conflict of interest. Again, Dr. Melanick. The greatest conflict of interest come in officer-involved shooting cases where issues such as the trajectory of the bullet. Where did the bullet come in? Where did it come out? What was the sequence of the bullets? Was the person, for example, down on the ground or had their arms up? with a surrendering posture when they were shot, as opposed to maybe they were running away. So all of those questions can play into whether the shooting was justified or not. And the physical findings are interpreted by the pathologist. If you can pressure the pathologist to say, I don't know, I'm not sure, the trajectory could be a different way, then you may be able to protect that law enforcement officer from prosecution. In the survey we mentioned, 43% of the forensic pathologists who work for coroners, who are also members of law enforcement, say they've been pressured to change a death certificate. If they refuse, says Dr. Melanick, they can pay a high price. What would happen in some cases is that they would suffer 
political pressure, meaning that uh, they would be embarrassed in the press. Um, there have been pathologists who have been terminated as a result of this and have been basically painted as incompetent, thus making it impossible for them to get hired again or have a career elsewhere. It's much more prevalent in controversial cases, and it's much more prevalent in cases where the pathologist is the chief medical examiner or the single pathologist in that jurisdiction. Are you surprised that we've had a hard time getting forensic pathologists to go on camera and talk about the pressure they've been subjected to. I'm not surprised at all that you've had a difficult time because remember this is a very high profile field and it's hard to get jobs in this field if you've been in the media and get targeted as a complainer or as someone who causes trouble. Take a look at what happened to Dr. Thomas Rudd. In 2012, at age 65, Dr. Rudd, a pathologist, decided to run for election as coroner in Lake County, Illinois. He was determined, he says, to take politics out of death investigations. When I won the election, my wife looked at me and said, do you think you can do the job? And I said, look, if I play it straight and honest, what possibly could go wrong? That's what you call tempting the gods. Almost from the beginning, Dr. Rudd stepped on toes and angered members of law enforcement, as he did in the case of Lieutenant Joe Glinowitz. In September 2015, Glinowitz, a Lake County police lieutenant, called in for backup, saying he had seen three suspicious men outside a factory. Shortly afterwards, Glinowitz was found dead with a single shot to the chest. Agents from the FBI and the ATF were called in to track down the killer or killers. But when Rudd's office did an autopsy... What we found was stunning. Nobody could have got that close to point a gun that way. So how does that happen? Only if he did it himself. Rudd told investigators that Glinowitz likely committed suicide. And yet, the manhunt for the murderers continued, and several suspects were even being held in jail. People are still being told that Lieutenant Glinowitz was shot by somebody and was a victim. Correct. And was a hero cop. Yes. When Rudd released his findings to reporters, he was accused of damaging the investigation. It took two months before officials came clean and acknowledged Lieutenant Glinowitz had taken his own life. But instead of an apology, Dr. Rudd soon found himself facing felony charges. Here's how it happened. When Rudd filed for re-election in 2016, the opposing party hired attorney Bert Odelson to find a way to get him off the ballot. Odelson says he found enough small mistakes on election petitions to get Rudd to withdraw from the race. That's usually the end of the story. Not usually, 99% of the time, it's the end of the story. Not in this case. Rudd was charged with five felony counts of perjury. When I heard that Dr. Rudd was indicted, I just couldn't believe it. We have far more egregious cases where no charges are ever brought. Bert Odelson was so outraged, he switched sides and joined Dr. Rudd's defense team, pro bono. Do you believe that these felony charges were brought in retaliation for the stances he took on these cases? I truly do. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Dr. Rubb was by then in his 70s. To avoid jail, he pleaded guilty to reduce charges in 2018. He's a free man now, but he can't run for coroner again. Dr. Rudd is a perfect example of someone who suffered for giving scientifically accurate testimony and also going to the press and making it clear that his science was sound. Dr. Melanick says that cases like this could make other pathologists think twice before standing up for the truth. So why does this all matter? Imagine you're the family of George Floyd, who died in Minneapolis in May of 2020 after a questionable encounter with cops. Was it murder? Or will a jury believe other factors might have caused his death? Dr. Melanick once again. If your loved one dies in the hands of law enforcement, you want to know that the autopsy was done with integrity. You want to know that you can rely on those findings. That's why it's important. They're rare cases, but they are devastating cases, and they have repercussions for our society and our public and our trust in our institutions. That's more important today than ever with so many police encounters caught on video. George Floyd, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Michael Brown. Sometimes justice relies on the findings, the independent findings of the death investigators in white coats. I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and that's my life of crime. A special thanks to the teams at 48 Hours and CBS Sunday Morning. I also want to thank my producers, Sam Egan, Alan Pang, and CBS Audio. Subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CBS Life of Crime. We'll see you next time. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.